From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A superintendent suddenly fired. A teacher walkout. A student protest. How did it get to this point in Colorado's third largest school district? Until we've restored some relational trust, this is going to continue to be something that gets in our way. It just doesn't feel good to work together when we can't even begin to trust each other. We'll talk about what's happening in Douglas County and what it could mean for other school districts. Then, my conversation with former Mayor of Denver and Secretary of Transportation and Energy Federico Pena. He says despite the challenges of today's political and social climate, there are opportunities. That's my message to a lot of people today who feel very frustrated. Don't give up. Persevere. Get involved. And, and find a way to bring change in a constructive fashion. Join the generous team of donors that help make Colorado Public Radio possible. It's affordable and easy to set up a membership. And if you set it up today, you'll get a free bonus gift from CPR. This special offer is available to everyone who helps kick off the fun drive by starting, restarting, or increasing their membership. Supporting Colorado Public Radio is already rewarding. It's just a little more rewarding today. Donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Haffel. School has been turbulent enough with the pandemic, but turmoil ramped up even more in the Douglas County School District over the past couple of weeks. Four newly elected board members suddenly signaled they wanted to fire the superintendent. That angered many in the community, leading to a large teacher walkout and rally, followed by a student walkout. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin is here to give us an overview and to tell us what this all means. Hey, Jenny. Hello, Nathan. Give us a quick breakdown of how this anger and division started. During the pandemic, parents became bitterly divided on whether their children should have to wear masks. And parents began showing up to the public comment period of those board meetings and really took their anger and anxiety out onto school board members. In November, a slate of four newcomers, they called themselves Kids First, swept decisively into power. And those four newcomers got elected with $400,000 in campaign donations, greatly outspending their opponents. And, And what did they set out to do? They wanted to restore parents' rights, get rid of the mask mandate, and reevaluate some policies like the district's equity policy. And much of the division, I would say, is fueled by a deep suspicion of what is being taught and this feeling that parents are being left out of this discussion, which is something that really wasn't an issue when you and I went to school. Yeah. Before we get into these divisive policy issues, what really threw gasoline onto the fire was the surprise termination of Corey Wise, the district superintendent. Yeah, Mr. Wise was well-liked by many in the district. He was a 26-year veteran. He worked there as a teacher, principal, and superintendent. Two members of the board's majority acknowledged they met with him privately to tell him they wanted to take the district in a new direction. And according to other board members, he was given an ultimatum, resign or we have the votes to remove you. 
And Jenny, that information that four board members had allegedly decided to remove Wise, that was disclosed by the other three board members who weren't in on his deci- this decision, but uh, who found out about it later, right? Yeah. And this is what angered many people. They allege the four newly elected board members broke Colorado's open meetings law during discussions that led up to the firing. In other words, talks about the job performance of a superintendent are supposed to take place with all seven board members in a closed executive session or publicly. In fact, there's been a lawsuit filed against the four. So last Wednesday, more than 1,500, about 40% of educators in Douglas County, 1,500, called in sick. Schools were closed on Thursday, and about 1,000 people rallied in front of district headquarters. Yeah, here's educator Stephanie Brink, who was upset there was no prior discussion of Wise's job performance among all board members or with Wise himself. That is not honest. It is not decent. There's no democracy. There's no justice involved. It is unfair. Then you had hundreds of students walk out of class on Monday at several district high schools. And they were upset about the superintendent's firing. Uh, They are also disturbed about a possible change in the district's equity policy, right? Tell us about that. The district has an equity policy, and it's meant to guide the predominantly white district uh, where teachers and students of color have complained about discrimination and racism in schools. This policy passed last spring after much community input, but the new board had some concerns about that policy. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, this issue is big in conservative circles across the country. Some believe the idea behind equity, that is giving every child what they need to succeed, is really an attempt to keep everyone's performance equal and will somehow hamper a child's natural abilities. Others feel that an effort to teach history that is more reflective of the experience of Black or Indigenous people, for example, that's led to shaming of white children. Here's Douglas County School Board member Kaylee Weiniger. Some of these concerning instances include esteeming certain identities and beliefs over other identities and beliefs and reports of shaming and retaliation against teachers, students, or staff who express views and opinions that are counter to others' views and opinions. She made those comments before the board voted 4-3 to to pass a resolution that directs the superintendent to propose potential changes to the equity policy. And the Douglas County students I spoke with at the rally, they want the equity policy to stay as is. I talked to a black high school student who wanted to remain anonymous because she fears retaliation. One thing I noticed as I got older is the different stuff that school didn't cover regarding black history or like other cultures or whatever. And so I think it's really important just for other people to learn and other people like me of color to learn of their culture, even though they go to a predominantly white school. So... So In the end, do we have a sense of why Douglas County Superintendent Corey Wise was fired? There were some statements made by school board president Mike Peterson in a Friday school board meeting that he felt Wise was unduly influenced by some members of the board, but no evidence was presented. In a KOA radio interview, however, he gave a few more reasons why Wise was let go. Yeah, And this is where I'd like to note that what is happening in these districts with new conservative board majorities, this is being watched closely by outsiders. Ryan Gerdusky, he's chairman of the 1776 Project PAC, which helped elect the new board, shared that same reason with a national audience on Fox News' Laura Ingram's show. The board majority felt Wise didn't do enough to quell the anger after the board announced a possible change to the equity policy. 
rather than trying to temper the situation, rather than trying to bring down the anger by the teachers, and just clarify, this isn't a white nationals thing, this isn't to attack uh, LGBT students, as many on the left were sitting there and saying, this is just to review the program that many parents have complained about. The Corey Wise, the superintendent, did nothing, and so he was fired on February 4th, and now this new school board, conservative school board, is looking for a superintendent that better reflects the value of the Good. school district. I should say the 1776 Project is a political action committee that helps elect school board members nationwide who want to reform schools by promoting patriotism and pride in American history. All right. So outside money, outside political groups, media hype, social media, they're all playing roles in forming and shaping opinion. Yes, which makes it even harder for divided school boards to build trust and get work done. Jenny, we don't know yet how the board will go about selecting a new superintendent, but in terms of the equity policy, there's something going on in another Colorado district that may hint at what some new conservative board member uh, board majorities are angling for. In the Woodland Park District, northwest of Colorado Springs, there was a board turnover in the election in November. The conservative board directed the district to work on a policy to allow parents to opt their children out of topics and materials that, quote, may be polarizing along ethnic and racial lines. Uh, the superintendent, Dr. Matthew Neal, spoke on the national show Fox and Friends. He said teachers must follow Colorado's academic standards, but... It's really about giving a pathway for them to understand when they get close to the edge of a controversial subject that they can go to an administrator or they can come to, to a central admin and say, this is feeling controversial. Um, I, I'd like to teach it. What does that? Can I obtain approval for doing that? Nathan, and it would let parents opt their children out for certain of certain lessons. He says they've worked with teachers on the policy and expect to roll it out next year. And another district in Colorado also appears to have some division. Yes, hundreds of students, parents, and school staff turned out this week to support three school officials whose contracts are being discussed in Mesa Valley District 51 in Grand Junction. And to demonstrate the opposition to a new conservative board, they're afraid that the same thing that happened in Douglas County School District will happen there. All right, Jenny, a lot going on. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine We'll be back with the perseverance story of Federico Pena. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains. And what happened when the plan jumped the track? Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. When you hear the name Federico Pena, a few things might come to mind. Denver's first Latino mayor, former Secretary of Transportation and Energy under Clinton, or maybe just that guy the road to DIA is named for. But his new autobiography, Not Bad for a South Texas Boy, A Story of Perseverance, goes beyond those notable achievements— we learn about how he forged a path forward despite racial and cultural prejudice and get the inside story on some of key parts of Denver's history. We spoke in January. Secretary Pena, welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. Uh, nice to talk to you. 
This book takes us through key stages of your life, beginning with your youth in Brownsville, Texas in the 50s and 60s, right on the western Gulf Coast on the border with Mexico. You were raised in a tight-knit Catholic family, conservative, as you put it in the book, and throughout you mention the strong bond you had with your family. Give us a brief taste of your youth in Brownsville. Well, back in those days, and to some extent today, South Texas was one of the poorest counties in the country. Three or four counties in that part of Texas continue to be some of the uh, poorest counties in the in the country. But Brownsville was about a 90% Latino population, uh, highly Catholic, very working class, a border town. I could literally walk across town and cross the bridge into Matamoros, which was part of Mexico, but we were also on the on the Gulf. So the bottom line for me was I always felt isolated in South Texas. I was isolated from the rest of the state, isolated from the nation, and we almost felt as if we were in a different part of, of the world. Um, but nevertheless, I had a very strong family. My parents were wonderful. Uh, my father worked very hard. My mother basically raised six children after mm-hmm. I was born, the third oldest. We had My mother had triplets. Uh, so it was in that context because a very strong family upbringing that I was able to persevere, as I describe in my book, and overcome a number of obstacles. And that's really a message that I want to deliver to so many people today who sometimes feel overwhelmed uh, by challenges or obstacles in their life. I mean, what are some of the obstacles that you faced in Brownsville? Well, there was a sense that even though uh, Brownsville was 90% Latino, uh, generally speaking, and, and this is a long time ago, this is back you know, in the 1950s, 1960s, um, Latinos were still not the top business people in the community, the top political leaders, the top civic leaders. Uh, there was a very subtle undercurrent, at least from my perspective, of some kind of discrimination against many Latinos, particularly if you were low income. And that was something that continued uh, from, as I describe in the book, the, uh, the Mexican-American War, uh, where Texas was part of Mexico until that war, and so many of the Latinos who, were re- who remained in Texas were not as successful as others, and that kind of continued for certain decades. It's much different today in Brownsville, but that was the case back then, and I sort of sensed that, and I felt that. And so when I left Brownsville and, and went to uh, Austin, to University of Texas, I was exposed to the real world, as we say, because uh, Austin was very different than Brownsville. Uh, in fact, the University of Texas, the student population was larger than the population of, of Brownsville. And of course, there were very few minorities and very few Latinos attending the University of Texas. So that was a whole new experience for me and presented a number of other obstacles. Yeah. And, and speaking of those those cultural insensitivities you, you, you had in Brownsville because of your Hispanic heritage, for, for example, the Catholic school you attended, your name, Federico, was changed to Fred. A- at the time, did you fully understand why they were changing your name? No, I did not. And, and that happened to so many of my friends. So if you were Roberto, you became Bob. You know, if you were Federico, you were Fred. If you were Jose, you became Joe. It, it was sort of accepted. We never really appreciated what was happening to our language and to some extent our culture. And it wasn't until later in life, as I grew and matured, and I experienced similar things at the University of Texas, that I reflected back on what had happened to me as a young person. And that affected my 
attitude and my interest in not pursuing traditional law, and we can talk about that when I graduated yeah. from law school, but becoming a civil rights lawyer, defending the rights of people who were underprivileged, who were low income, uh, who were facing institutional discrimination back in those days. So in a very subtle way, that experience in Brownsville affected my professional and finally my political life years and years later, but I didn't realize it until I was much older. Yeah, and that that part of this, your story really hit me especially hard. Uh, my own name was changed twice from when I was a foster child in South Texas. As a baby, I was called Freddie, while my birth name was Fernando, to, of course, today my name is Nathan. Uh, it, it seems this kind of shared experience feels like a part of Hispanic history and culture that hasn't been widely told before. That's right. And there are more and more books that are coming out today, thankfully, uh, for example, uh, telling the real story of what happened at the Alamo. Uh, <clears throat> as a young man and as a Texan, you were told certain things about the Alamo and the, quote, heroes of the Alamo and the atrocities of Santa Ana, the general from Mexico. But when you dig into new books that have been released, the real history is now coming out. And we need more of that. Uh, I talk in the book about the fact that as a young person in Brownsville, if you traveled from Brownsville, let's say, north to San Antonio or wherever, you always had to go through checkpoints. <clears throat> and right. these were border patrol crossings. They would stop your car. They would ask everybody in the car if you were an American citizen. And as a young man, that frightened me. Um, and it was interesting to learn that apparently you had similar experiences. Others True. have, but we never talked about it. We just assumed that was the way of life. It was not till later that I asked myself, well, if I lived in Houston or Austin or Dallas, I would never experience that. Why was it that this heavily Latino community in South Texas had to undergo those checkpoints anytime you left South Texas, 20 or 30 miles outside of Brownsville? Those were the subtle kinds of things that happened to me as a young person that I didn't appreciate at the time as much as when I was an adult. Right and now, and I can talk feeling... about it and write about it in the context of American history and Texas history. Right, right. It was that feeling of otherness that, that comes out over and over again, you know, having to prove yourself, having to hold yourself to a higher standard, you know, proving that your family was American when, in fact, your family had been living on American soil before it was American soil, right? That was the great irony. So on my mother's side, the person who founded Laredo, Texas in 1755, uh, Colonel Tomas Sanchez, is my fifth great-grandfather. And my family, through my mother's side, fought in the Civil War. Santos Benavides was the highest ranking Latino in the Confederacy, believe it or not. But all during those centuries, uh, my family were ranchers, farmers, business people, civic and political leaders, uh, military people who served in wars. I talk about my father and his two brothers who served in World War II, who received medals, and my uncle who lost a leg stepping on a mine in Germany, who fought in the Battle of the Bulge. But so many millions of Latino families in this country have been contributing for centuries in many, many ways, just like my family. And yet it's a story that's untold and it's unrecognized. And unfortunately today, there are some people who just think of Latinos as recent immigrants and there are, but they forget and don't know because our history books don't describe this. Many of us and our families are rooted in this land long before the constitutional convention which established this nation. And that's a story that needs to be told. And I talk about it in my book. 
Let's talk a little bit about you coming to Colorado. You moved here in 1974, practiced law in South Texas for a time before that, but I find it so interesting. For a man who loves Colorado so much, you had originally thought of just spending a short time here. Why did you stay? It was pure accident. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I transferred my, uh, back then it was a fellowship that I received after law school uh, to the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, which had an office here in Denver. And I did civil rights work for Maldiv, as it was called. <clears throat> I was originally supposed to go to California to work with the farm workers, but I didn't make that left turn, so to speak. Yeah. I remained in Denver and practiced law here as a civil rights lawyer. And then eventually uh, ran for the state legislature quite uh, accidentally also. And the rest, as we say, is history. So that's the the nature of the fact that I came to Colorado. I also had my my brother, Alfredo, who was going to law school here in Denver. So I was able to visit him when I came and eventually just just stayed and fell in love with the state, fell in love with the people and just love Colorado. To, you know, and I've never considered any other state as my home or certainly uh, even when I came back from Washington, people thought I'd stay in D.C. or go to New York or some larger city. And I said, no, Denver is my home and I love Colorado. So this is where I am. Yeah. You, you write extensively about quote unquote, the system and how it was keeping those struggling down. However, you, you eventually became part of the system, working with chambers of commerce and government entities to, to build change. What was that internal struggle like for you to move from that view of the system in Colorado and, and in Texas to being fully and proudly part of it? Well, that's part of the message that I have in my book. And I I hope that people today who have lost faith in government and who feel that they are powerless can learn from my experience. Because I did for many years, uh, as a civil rights lawyer, spent most of my time suing institutions, whether they were government institutions or other institutions. And there was a, a certain amount of animosity that I had. And when I worked in introducing and, and supporting a legislation in, in the Colorado legislature as, as a young lawyer, I was surprised and amazed that the legislation passed. And it opened my eyes to the fact that people in these institutions, like the state legislature, are people like me. They're human. Uh, they're not people with horns. Uh, and I think so many people who are on the outside complaining about government need to understand that it's much more effective to get involved, to be part of the solution. And yes, while it's important uh, to to complain and to protest, uh, it's more effective to get involved. And that's what happened to me. So it transformed my my attitude about how to bring change in in our society. And that's how I got involved in public service and and, and, mayor of Denver and then working in Washington. And it completely transformed my life into an understanding that it's it's not enough to be on the outside. You got to figure out a way to get involved. That's my message to a lot of people today who feel very frustrated. Don't give up. Persevere. Get involved and and find a way to bring change in a constructive fashion. I want to talk about your mayoral campaign for the city of Denver, 1982. I, I mean, you were an outsider. You're from South Texas. You're Hispanic. You're you're not that well known by Denverites at the time, and you have this idea. Uh, of a campaign theme. Imagine a great city. Talk about what you were trying to say to people in Denver with that idea, who were like, who is this Federico Pena guy? The the basic message was a sense that there was this undercurrent of discontent among so many people in Denver at that time. People like me, 
who had come from other parts of the country. Many were well-educated professionals, but they felt frustrated. We had the brown cloud, we had challenges facing the city, and we just didn't feel that city government at that time was acting boldly enough to bring change. And from that undercurrent of discontent and frustration, we developed this theme of, well, we can do much better. And that's when the theme of imagine a great city emerged from very close friends of mine who were advising me. And it was a message to so many people in the city that, look, we can do much better if we work together, if we believe, if we have a vision, uh, if we have great ideas, and if we simply work hard. And that was the view of imagine a great city. And frankly, it applies today. And, and people need to understand, and I hope they do, particularly people who have moved to Denver recently, that the city that we have today just did not accidentally occur. It is a result of 30 or more years of hard work by many, many people over the last many years who wanted to make Denver unique and better and greater. And we have done that. But now it's time to step up again because we have new challenges now in Denver and in Colorado. And I ask all the new people who have moved to Colorado to do what I did, to get involved, to figure out a way to provide new solutions so that we can move our city forward into the next decade and beyond. That's the challenge and the opportunity today. Imagine a great city, imagine a greater city is the way I would put it today. Right. And, and in your inauguration speech, you say, quote, what we are working toward is not the Denver of tomorrow, but the Denver of decades from tomorrow. With what you just said, looking at Denver and where it is right now, how do you think you did working toward a Denver decades from your time as mayor? Because there are some big challenges. Isn't this a city that is pushing people out because they can't afford to live here? Uh, homelessness is on the rise. Uh, how do you think what you did back in the 80s stands today? When you look back to where we were in the 80s, Nathan, and and people need to remember that I think a year after I was elected, we went into a major recession. It was unbelievable. Our unemployment rate was 2% above the national average. We had record vacancies, record foreclosures. Almost every sector of the state's economy imploded. And so we had to claw our way out of this terrible recession. And that meant making investments, bringing so many people together, and slowly over successive administrations, followed by Mayor Wellington Webb and John Hickenlooper, all those, all those efforts over 30 years clawed our way out of that recession and built the Denver of today. But it's much different than the Denver of back then. And hmm. so we addressed a lot of the challenges. Uh, we diversified our economy. We actually cleaned up the brown cloud. When I left office, we only had one bad air day. Um, we created new employment. We built a new airport, new convention center, Cherokee shopping center, strong neighborhoods, all those things. But you're right. I we mean, the cloud is back. <laughs> you have to continue to do these things. So today, you're right. We have air pollution problems. We have homelessness. We have crime. We have neighborhoods that no longer uh, pr- provide for, for people who have lived there for years to remain in those neighborhoods. We have traffic issues. But again, it's time for people to once again get involved to solve today's problems, just as my generation did back in the 80s. So that's the nature of cities. You have to continue to invest and work. Otherwise, you drift back into uh, the kind of challenges that we're, fight- we're facing today. You were uh, of one of the strong mayors of Colorado. You build consensus to find compromise. Um, however, the city's 
current Mayor Michael Hancock has a different structure to work in now with much more power being given to city council. With that said, could the achievements you had during your time as mayor then uh, still stand with the power structure that, that the, the mayor is seeing now? Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and and remember that even though when I was elected, it was, quote, a strong mayor form of government, there were some members of city council who didn't <laughs> agree with my philosophy. And so it was a constant challenge. So, for example, when we created the historic district in Lower Downtown, which today many people believe has been so important to the vitality of Denver, that passed city council by one vote. One vote. <laughs> so had we not gotten that one vote at one o'clock in the morning, we wouldn't have had Lodo. Wow. So the point that I'm making is every mayor has challenges, but you have to work through them, work with city council, work with the broader community and bring everybody together to support your vision. And that's a challenge that every mayor faces, every president faces, every governor faces. But when you apply yourself and you work with people and you establish a vision and you explain it to citizens. And I, I had countless neighborhood meetings and town hall meetings explaining why we needed a new airport, why we needed a convention center, why we needed to do certain things. People get it. Federico Pena was mayor of Denver from 1983 to 1991. He would go on to become the U.S. Secretary of Transportation and Secretary of Energy. His new autobiography is not bad for a South Texas boy, a story of perseverance. We spoke in January. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.